0: We recently sat down with Philly resident and New York Times number one bestselling author Jennifer Weiner. Jen met with us at the Hungry Pigeon restaurant in Queen Village to talk about writing, women in writing, social media, journalism, her decision to believe in herself that could have cost her her career, douche ads, and a great Philly Blunt round. This interview was so good we decided to break it up into two parts. I mean, she's only sold 13 million books. Reef was still finishing up his uh, European tour and couldn't be here with us, so Donya Hedinger of Billy Penn and previous Philly Blunt guests was gracious enough to sit in and help us out with this one. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast so others can find it. Follow us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all as The Philly Blunt. Please enjoy part one of The Philly Blunt with Jennifer Weiner.
1: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Philly Blunt. My name is Sean at Good Times. Hey, this is a very nervous Greg. <laughs> right, and we have a special guest host. Reef is still once again. I don't know if he's ever Air- coming back. <laughs> he's coming back. He's at airport hell. He they lost his luggage on the way over to Europe for his tour, and now he's supposed to fly back today. And he has not arrived. He's stuck in Frankfurt in the Frankfurt airport. So uh, he's getting hammered in the Frankfurt airport as we recorded this. As we record this, nice. but we have a very special guest host. We have brought Back, one of our favorite guests, Donya Henninger. Donya, welcome back.
2: Hey, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm very excited.
1: All right, we are very excited too. We are talking with uh, Jennifer Weiner author of what, 16?
0: Are we going many, on
3: 17? Many, many, My many, many, <laughs> many books. I, yeah. I
0: just want to say, how the fuck do you write so much? <laughs>
3: I don't get out much. I <laughs> don't leave the house. Sort of yeah. on, it's a parole situation. <laughs> it's like an ankle bracelet.
1: <laughs> yeah, how do you, you know, how does how does your day start? I mean, you're obviously, I, I read that somewhere that you try to write 2,000 words a day. Is that right?
3: Yeah, I mean, ish, kind of. Like, some days are obviously better than, others, but um, I I get up around 8.20 in the morning and my husband, who has seen the kids off to school, thank you husband, um, he, he will give me the news and the weather in his extremely deep soothing voice so like even if the world is ending it kind of sounds okay it's like Trump's been elected (laughs) and you're like well (laughs) Um, so we walk we walk the dog we walk Moochie the little the little rat rat dog Um, and then I try to exercise most days and I I go to Queen Village Yoga sometimes I go to Zakti Fitness which is right down here on um, 4th and Monroe Um, some kind of exercise for a while and then I come home and then I kind of work until the kids get back at like four in the afternoon.
1: I know you've talked about how writing isn't something where just you're waiting for this magical muse to give you all these incredible words. Right. It's really a job. Like you really have to grind that out. It
3: is a job and you have to grind it out. And I I think, I mean it's so funny, like any writer will tell you this. Like if you're at a party and you tell people what you do, the guaranteed response that you will get from somebody is, oh I could write a book. I've got a book. I've got a book in me. And, And you're, you know then you make the joke of like, well have somebody get that out. But you know the difference between people who actually write books and people who just talk about wanting to is just like you you put your butt in the seat and you open up the laptop and you make yourself type basically. My husband talks about like typing versus writing like if you can 't write, just type just get something on the page. You can always fix it you can always go back, but you got to just make yourself do it. There was a thread going around recently that.
2: Uh, I forget who said it, but you have to write a thousand words to get the perfect hundred words.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if that's always exactly the ratio. Sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less. But yeah, I mean, writing is rewriting, you know, so you've got you've to gotta get that first draft so you can get to the second draft, so you can get to the fourth draft, fifth draft, and then finally you've got something that's worth publishing. How many drafts do you usually go through? For a book, I would say like probably like three or four complete like beginning to end and then there will be like okay let's let's work on this scene or let's work on the ending or let's think about this character so there'll be bits here and there but um you know i would i would guess that maybe like half the words from the first draft make it through to the end sometimes more sometimes less but yeah it's work you know it's not it's not like magic it's not like the the muse comes and sprinkles fairy dust that's that's our problem <laughs> you
0: know, it took me 4 years to write a book. He's been working on one for about <laughs> a De- decade. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
3: So like I
1: mean like so you're, you know, like the Stephen King talked about in the on writing book about how writing is you it's time travel. Yeah. You can you can what you're thinking right now by the time they read it you have to make that appear in their mind, and you can. And, yep. and when, I, when I read that passage, I was kind of blown away.
3: Yeah, no, it's 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 true, and I mean, Stephen King's other famous saying is that writing is uniquely portable magic. Like, you can be carrying around this entire other world with you, which I think is a kind of amazing thing. So, yeah, but that, on writing, is is one of my favorite books to recommend to people that want to write, or trying to, you know, trying to do it better, or trying to do it for a living I, I think that's a really good like guide to the craft.
0: Do you think you have a leg up on us? Not Donya, but Johnny and I, because we never did any kind of real journalism. Like, were you having deadlines all the time just teaching the right?
3: I gotta say, I think it helps. I really do. Because, like, I, I worked at like a small paper in central Pennsylvania, my first job out of college, and I was so snotty and full of myself, right? Like, I had studied with Toni Morrison and I had studied with Joyce Oates, and I thought I was, like, the shit. And I get there, and they're like, okay, go cover the sewage board here. And, <laughs> and I'm like, uh, okay, I'm no longer the shit. I'm now writing about <laughs> the shit. And, and then I get back from the sewage board hearing, they're like, okay, write 12 inches. And I'm like, okay, but you know, my 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 muse, my muse has not spoken to me. And they're like, yeah, yeah, write 12 inches. So I write my 12 inches. And then they give me this like stack of papers, and they're like, okay, these are the school lunches for five yes. school districts. You have to type in all the school lunches. What? Which I, yeah, <laughs> which I did. And let me tell you, like, there is nothing that will knock the F. Scott Fitzgerald out of you faster than having to sit there every day and type like hot dog in bun, (laughs) fruit cup, you know, your choice, skim or chocolate milk. But it was like, it was, they would throw everything at you because it was a small paper and technically my beat was education. So I was covering school board meetings and I was, you know, covering teacher strikes and students winning awards and, you know, high schools, whatever was going on in in these five school districts. One of them did have a really big strike that I wound up writing about for most of a year but um, in addition to that it was you know you were like general assignments. so like if a new bagel shop opened you wrote about that and if there was like a huge house fire you wrote about that and if there was a car crash you wrote about that and you had you know deadline 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 and if you screwed something up the readers of the center daily times were <laughs> not afraid to let you know and like this was like the pre-internet era so like I shudder to think what it's like now but like I would come and sit at my desk and I pick up my phone it would be like you have 47 voicemails and I'd be like oh would I screw up this time? But just
0: angry readers.
3: Angry readers, yeah. Or, or you know, um, the readers who who were, you know, they they were they would be nice about it. They would say, you know, it wasn't a four percent tax increase. It was a point point four tax percent tax increase. You know, big difference. But, you know, I really really think that like just that like drumbeat of like having to churn out copy like every day, and then every day would be a new day. So it's like whatever you blew the day before, it was like you got an Another paper to fill and I remember my mother like my my first year out of college I'm working this job and she's like well you're you're working on Christmas they're open on Christmas and I was like Fran when you walked to the end of the driveway this morning was there a newspaper there and she's like well I guess there was and I'm like et voila right you You know somebody's got to do that someone's got to fill those pages
2: so yeah it helps Local newspapers. I mean, at least at least those people who were calling and
3: angry and correcting you—they were engaged. They had something to to read. And yes, exactly. I mean, like I I worry a lot about what it means to be losing local papers. Like I think that journalism just like so missed the boat with the internet. Like didn't see it coming. Didn't know how to monetize it. Didn't didn't understand that once the the revenue from classified ads was gone. Like once Craigslist sort of ate that piece of the pie and. And, you know, I I think that um, we're... We're looking into like the barrels of the gun of like the day when there's going to be big cities that don't have anybody reporting on what what the what the politicians are doing, how the money's being spent. And that really matters. And, you know, it's it's um, so, yeah, like I, I mean, it's funny, like for the longest time, people would ask me like, you know, what advice do you have for like a young person who wants to be a writer? And I would say, get a job at a small local paper. And I can't even say that anymore because there aren't small local papers anymore. Anymore. so I'm like you know go get a job at BuzzFeed I guess you know get a job at Gawker I would say when there was Gawker
0: right yeah, yeah we touched that on that with you Danya. like I had no idea classifieds were the backbone of that was um, it newspapers. that was where
3: the money came yeah. from yeah and you know car ads and stuff yeah. like yeah and and department store ads but like the classifieds were such a big piece of it and once that was gone and and you know like newspapers didn't get people used to the idea that you have to pay for content, you know, like they, everybody, you know, so like 10 years later, it's like, no, we want you to pay to read this story. And readers were like, well, I'm not paying to read that. I don't pay to read stuff. Are you kidding me? Like it's free. It's words are free. And it's like, well, you know, but it costs money to produce those highly reported stories. And, you know, I, I, I I can't imagine a world where there's not journalism. So it's going to, there's going to have to be some kind of course correction at some point and figure out how to fund it. But we need it. I mean, now more than ever, I think.
2: I'm, I mean, I, that leads me into
3: a question of how do you price... Books. How, how does that work? Well, that's an interesting question too, because now there's eBooks, and it's like, okay, I can understand charging somebody, you know, twenty dollars or fifteen dollars or twelve dollars for like a physical thing with like a cover and a binding, and somebody had to like design the pages and how that looks. But like, if you're talking about an eBook, it's like it's hard to get people to understand, and and especially like. There, you know first Amazon started selling self-published stuff for like 99 cents so like people would get used to the idea like okay a novel is 99 cents I am not paying more than 99 cents and then there was all of this piracy okay like I go to my dentist who I will not name and I'm lying there you know with my mouth open. he's like my wife just found the greatest website and all your books are there for free <laughs> and I'm like it, <laughs> and he's like no, nah, it's not the library and I'm like okay you realize is that I'm not getting any yeah. money from that, but yeah. you know, he was you're talking about. Books. It. You're stealing my book. You know, right? Like, do you want me to pay for this? Yeah, filling?
0: yeah this filling's free, right? Exactly,
3: right? You know, but um, how do you price a book? Okay, so uh, you know, I mean, I think that you have to make people understand that like there's labor that goes into not just the writing, but like designing a cover. Like that's somebody's job, and you know, copy editing the book is somebody's job. Designing the interior. The Pages—that's somebody's job. Um, But it's—it's hard, you know, because it's—it's that whole thing of like journalism. Of like, you know, I can read anything I want to, and it's all free. And information wants to be free. And it's like, well, no, you know, you gotta—you gotta pay. You gotta pay. And if you don't, you get what you pay for.
0: Can I can I touch on because in my fantasy world. I get a book deal, Mm -hmm. and I'm picturing the font and the page. Do you have much say in the font they use and the page quality and texture? I
3: am not a visual person. Like, if I I cared about that stuff, like, if I could tell the difference between fonts, I'm sure that if I went in there and was just like, I would like, you know, this sans serif has just got to go or whatever. But, like... I mean, it sort of depends. It depends, you know, what kind of relationship you have with your publisher. It depends, you know, what kind of advance you've gotten. I mean, if you, the bigger the advance, the more they're going to want to try to keep you happy. So it it just it, it a lot of it depends. Like who you're working with and if you catch them on a good day or not. But yes, generally the author does have some say. Although I will tell you that um, I, as an author, have a lot less say than Barnes and Noble does. Like I, one of my book covers, I hated. I hated, hated, hated. I'm like. This looks like a douche commercial. You cannot use it. It's horrible. And they're like, well, we've already shown it to the fiction buyer at Barnes and Noble, and she thinks it's terrific. So and I was like, all right, douche at it is. <laughs> and you say,
0: oh, what book it was? Or?
3: Uh I've talked about it before. Yeah, so yeah, okay. it was Best Friends Forever. Right. It was the the two women from behind walking on the beach, and one of them looks like she's picking a wedgie. <laughs> <laughs> That's my, my, other, my other big problem with that cover. But I was, I was just like, every time I look at it, I feel like like, I can smell vinegar. And apparently it worked, uh. Yeah, no, it did. It was, it was a number one bestseller. So, like, you know, all hail Barnes and Noble. Like, but that's the thing. Sometimes they know more than you do, like, for real. Like, I mean, I, I'm such a terrible, like, my my idea for Good in Bed, my first book, I was like, there should be a bed on the cover, and it should be unmade on the front, and it should be made on the back. And they were like, yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah
1: anyway, just keep turning out those words. Exactly. we we'll handle the art. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, they,
3: they were nice about it. They were like, we'll, we'll, we'll think about that. So l- let's talk a
1: little bit about that book. That was your uh-huh. first book. And obviously, yeah. you, you it was an interesting process to go from small-town journalist to best-selling author. Mm-hmm. And part of that process was you having a fairly powerful agent that wanted you to change the characters in the book to uh, make them yes, more, uh, right? Make them skinnier, make yep. them more yep, palatable yep, yep. for the mainstream. Yep. And you said, "No, I'm not
3: going to do that." I said, "No, I'm not going to do that." Yeah. So was that was that horrifying? Were you like, "Oh my gosh, I'm blow- this is my big chance. This is my blowing big it? chance, and I'm blowing it." Yes, I was terrified. Okay, so I was in Philadelphia by then. I was working at the Enquirer. Had a, I loved working at the Enquirer? I was very, very happy, and I had written this book after a breakup. I'd gotten like really badly dumped, and so. I I write write this book and it's about um, you know, my joke is that it's about a girl who was kind of like me and a guy who was kind of like Satan and (laughs) the, the girl getting the happy ending and so I... I was very convinced that I was going to find an agent very easily like I, I'm like you know I've published short stories I work at the Enquirer the is a really big paper you know I've done this I've done that and I start sending query letters which are you know here's who I am and here's what I've written here's what all my book's about let me you know if you want to see the first chapter and I send out 25 query letters I get 24 rejections just like nope not interested not taking new clients not taking new fiction not taking new women's fiction and I finally had one agent who um, wanted to read the first chapter and then asked to see the entire manuscript and then said she wanted to work with me and she was and remains a a very big deal agent she's very high powered she has many best selling authors in her stable and I couldn't believe my good fortune I was absolutely over the moon and then she told me um, she said i don't think anybody is going to want to read a book about a lonely pathetic fat girl and I think that you should change it I think you should you know maybe make her like Bridget Jones where she's just like a little fat and I was just so offended. I was just like, this is you know, nice. I mean people who've read Good in Bed will know that like, the, the heroine's size and her eventual making peace with her body is the point of the entire thing. And so I'm like, if I change it, then it's just like it's it's Bridget Jones' diary with a bat mitzvah, which is <laughs> not what I wanted to do. So, But I, you know, and, and she had other suggestions. She didn't like the title. She wanted to call it Big Girl, which I thought was horrific. And I went home for the weekend and I I thought and I thought and I thought and you know part of me was like she's experienced and she knows what she's doing and if she is suggesting these changes she's doing it for a reason and maybe if I don't make them I'll never get another agent no one will want to buy the book like it'll just never leave the the box under my bed. and I, I just eventually decided that like if i make the changes she wants me to make it's not going to be the story that i want to tell anymore and i decided i would rather like take my chances and try to find a different agent than i would trying to make the changes she was asking for and it, it was terrifying because i really thought like you know this could be it like this could be but the only on one
1: the, the 24 rejection exactly. so you're already thinking nobody else is even
3: exactly that's exactly what i was thinking and i i was um you know but I, I figured like okay if she's interested enough to be like you know reading it and giving me notes about it like I, I ought to at least be able to get somebody else to read it right so I had become friendly with some of the young women who worked in her office and I went to one of them and I said I don't want to put you in a bad situation um, I don't think it's gonna work out with me and your boss and do you know any other literary agents with free time and low standards <laughs> and she was a freelancer she was you know working in that office office and she was working for other agents and she's like i do know somebody she's really young she's never sold fiction but i think she'd really like your book and so i send it off and then a couple days later I'm, i'm sitting at my desk at the inquirer and the phone rings and it's this other agent and she's like i love your book it spoke to me and so i'm like okay great Ta-da. Nice. The rest is history. The rest is history, uh, yeah. That's
1: Stallone and Rocky. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Believe in yourself, you know. Believe in your own story.
1: Yeah. Yeah. uh, Stallone, they... that people offered to buy Rocky but they said he couldn't star in it because he had never starred in anything mm-hmm. and he was like no I'm not I'm not telling the story unless I'm the star and then finally somebody somebody gave him a shot
3: I never knew that yeah. yes no l- luckily I, I was not <laughs> It didn't say about in her shoes like you can only make this movie if I'm the star <laughs> I was very very handed willing, it off to Cameron and do something. very willing to let that be somebody
0: else that would have been a total baller <laughs> move <laughs> maybe well, next
3: time yeah. maybe next
1: time yeah let, let, let's let's get into that it makes sense uh-huh. it's next chronologically and yep, it's also in her shoes, yeah, yeah and it's also the one they made into a big Hollywood hit that's yeah. the first uh, time I was familiar with you mm-hmm. was I, I saw that movie yeah um, uh-huh. so what was What was it like to all of a sudden, okay, you've created these characters, you've you've done a second book, the first one did well, and you've done the second one, and I mean, holy cow, you've got freaking Hollywood stars on a giant screen... Playing these characters,
3: it was it was really amazing, and it was just it was one of the most surreal experiences of my life. Because like here's this story that, that's only ever been in your head, and these people that have only ever existed in your imagination, and it's like now you can see them. Um, it was it was crazy, and I. I felt so lucky because like it got optioned and lots of things get optioned. Things get optioned all the time. They never get made. And my my brother is a film producer and he was the one who was handling the deal. And so he would call me up and he'd be like, "You know, all these people are interested in it." And I'd be like, "Yeah, great, whatever. You know, call me the day they start filming." And he'd be like, "You know, Curtis Hanson is interested in directing." And I'd just be like, "Yeah, whatever. You know, Susanna Grant wants to write the screenplay." I'd be, "Yeah, you know, Cameron Diaz <laughs> wants to star and I, I at this point I'm like is this really going to happen like I had just convinced myself like it's just not like just cash the check and move on <laughs> right? because right. that's really what happens for the, the vast 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 majority of people like I just did not want to get my heart broken and so I wasn't even thinking about it until it happened and then I was just like I can't believe this is happening it was amazing
0: is it is it hard as an author to see so to kind of give up control like they cast it and things like that
3: I I think I mean it was one of like the rare mentally healthy moments of my life where (laughs) I, I was just sort of like you know what like I'm I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to tell a story on a screen. I know how to tell a story on a page. So I am just gonna say I did my work in the book and I'm gonna let this be their story to tell. And I'm just gonna like let go and let God. And if it's a fantastic movie, that's great. And if it's a not so great movie, that's still gonna bring people to the book. And I I was just really zen about it in, in kind in a way that I, I look back on and I'm like, how did I do that? But I, I think it's really the only healthy way to go because I was um, I was on a panel once and it was um, it was a fundraiser um, in Cape Cod for like a homeless women's shelter and it was like you know an afternoon with you know an afternoon a page to screen and it was like me and three other authors who'd had their books made into movies and so we're all sitting there and the deal was they showed clips of the movies and then they talked to each of us about it so Jacqueline Machard was there her book was called The Deep End of the Ocean. It was an Oprah pick, and Michelle Pfeiffer was in the movie, and so they show a clip of that. And she talks about like what it was like to be the first yeah. Oprah pick and how amazing that was. And then this woman named Claire Cook was there, and her book was called Must Love Dogs, and John Cusack was in it, and she was talking about how nice they were to her on the set, and you know she had her own director's chair and everything, and what it was like to publish her first book at fifty and have that happen. And then they showed in her shoes, and I, I told my whole story about like having my my Nana be an extra in the movie and like how great that was and then they show a clip from Alice Hoffman's, um, her book that was made into a movie Practical Magic and it's the scene and Practical Magic is this lovely beautifully written like gorgeously imagined story about witchcraft and this this witch you know this this family of witches and how it sort of runs in the in the blood of these sisters and the scene they show is Nicole Kidman and Sandra Bullock dancing around drunk to the song put de lime into coconut
1: <laughs> and
3: I can feel like the temperature in the room drop and the, the scene is over and the lights go up and Alice Hoffman leans into her microphone and says to this audience of like fancy pants ladies who lunch, she said, I fucking hated that movie.
2: <laughs> Amazing. <laughs>
3: and I'm just like, Whoa. Amazing. But that's the thing. It's like, you can get your heart broken. Like, I think everybody has a story of like, you know the book was better like there's a book that you love that was made into like an absolute abortion of a movie like um you know it's um A Prayer for Own, Nini, was turned into, which is one of my all-time favorite books, was turned into, like, a really meh movie. And um, Susan Isaac's book, Shining Through, was turned into a not-so-great movie. Um, And it happens. And I was prepared for it to happen. I was just, you know, I was just like, I'm just going to be okay with this, no matter what the outcome, so.
0: What do you think when you go to see the movie and you see your name on the screen?
3: It's crazy. I mean, it's still crazy, but it's, I, you know even after all these books, like Mrs. Everything is my 13th novel. And like when you get that box of books and you open it up and there's the book and there's your name on the cover, like it it never gets old. Like it's still this like, oh my God, I can't believe it. My book is going to be in bookstores and people are going to read it and people who I'm not related to are going to read it. (laughs) Like it's still this amazing thing. So I just, I feel so lucky like every day of my life that this is what I get to do.
1: you're, pretty active on Twitter, and this is... How much of that is just you kind of like putting out there what you want to put out there and how uh-huh. much of that is you advertising or keeping the momentum going for uh-huh. what you do?
3: See it's, it's really okay so I had a blog like back in the day when people had blogs and I remember like starting my blog and telling my publisher like I'm going to have a blog now and they were like oh that's great what is a blog and like with Twitter like when I got on Twitter like that was right at the beginning of things and I did both of those things because they felt very comfortable and very organic and they were they were words right like I had come from a newspaper background and so with my blog I could like write about you know what was going on in the world and politics and pop culture and stuff like that and Twitter became a way to do that you know on you know in in tinier nuggets but you know the same kind of stuff like and and being the instantaneousness of it like being able to just like jump in and say something about something so all of that really spoke to the the former journalist in me and um, you know Is it useful for for promotion? Yes. Like telling people I have a new book out, I'm doing these events, you know, here's where you can buy the book, here's where you can read part of the book. Like, yes, that's helpful. Um, And publishers now require their authors to do it. Like, I'm really lucky because to me it was just very organic and it felt like fun and it doesn't feel burdensome. But there are writers, I think, for whom it is tremendously burdensome and they don't like doing it. And then, like, you know, it's like uh, Twitter felt pretty natural. Like, Facebook, I'm like, okay, I get it, I understand. Instagram was was sort of where like the the first conflict I had because my publisher's like you really need to do this and I was like why I don't understand it's <laughs> pictures like I'm words that's pictures and they're like but that's where people are that's where people are finding out about books and I'm so like young
1: people are. yes that's where yeah.
3: millennials are right. that's where like these stories and I do not understand it and like I go back and forth with my agent all the time because I'm like how is a picture of my book on a bed with a latte and a hand going to make somebody want to read it. And she's like, I don't know, but it just does. So, like, Instagram, you know, Instagram is, is Twitter's where I want to be and Instagram's where I have to.
0: I mean, you've had some Twitter
3: and dust up. Yeah. <laughs> Not lately. Yeah. Not lately. I've been I've been pretty good. I yeah. I kind of got what I wanted and I stepped away, <laughs> you know, claimed victory and left the ring. But I mean, that's the other thing about Twitter. Like Twitter is rough. Twitter is yeah. rough. Twitter is rough. However, Back in the day, if you had a problem with the way that books were being covered in the New York Times or in the New York Review of Books or in the world in general, like you could like you could bitch to your mom, you could complain to your agent, you could talk to your editor. But you didn't really have a platform. Like, you could write a letter to the editor, maybe, and be like, why are you reviewing, like, 30 books by men and 10 books by women? That's not fair. And maybe they'd publish your letter, maybe they wouldn't, and maybe people would comment on it, and maybe they wouldn't. But that, was, that would be the end of it. Social media gives everyone a soapbox. And it, it gives people a platform that... People who wouldn't otherwise have a platform. And it's really interesting, like both for
1: better and for worse for better
3: and for worse and and one of the interesting like these days in publishing there's a lot of noise around young adult books where and cancel culture where like somebody will say like this book is insensitive and you know we're gonna cancel it and, and writers will you know they'll they'll ask for their publishers not to publish their books they'll be like you know I've made mistakes I need to fix them whatever and and then there are older writers that are just like well this is the Twitter mob this is like the unhinged you know, these, the, the mob. And and I'm like, it's interesting to me if every time you see the words like Twitter mob, you take those words out and you put in the words, people I didn't have to listen to once upon a time. Because it's really true. It's like, you know, women talking about books not getting covered or books not being covered fairly or books being called chick lit. You know, nobody used to have to listen to us. And social media gave us a platform and gave us like some, like a critical mass to the, to the point that editors and publishers did eventually have to engage and I think change some of their practices. So, you know, it's rough, but I'll, I'll take it. I, I find it really interesting that it's not
2: necessarily something is only outrage you know, if this only outrageous on Twitter, that's not necessarily enough mm-hmm. It's when it gets picked up by r- traditional media or mainstream right. media. That's when it gets amplified to the point where, you know the publisher is going to be worried.
3: Nobody, you know, if, if women authors were unhappy with the way their books were being described and being reviewed, nobody gave a shit because nobody was listening to us. And but once you had Twitter and you had authors talking about it, and then you had readers talking about it, like it got to the point where you, where where the people in power could not ignore it anymore. And I think that Twitter has given people, like I said, it's a soapbox, it's a platform, it's a meme to speak truth to power in some cases. And it's also just a means, you know, I mean, some of the fighting is just silly and some of it is ad hominem and it's, you know, it's it's ugly and it's regrettable. But I, I do think, you know, I think the the arc of, of history bends toward justice and I think that Twitter's been part of that in some cases. So.
1: Well, you could also fill in the blanks for what you, with what you just said with angry white males Mm. never felt like they were recently haven't felt like they've been listened to and recently felt like nobody was covering them and now Mm -hmm. all of a sudden Twitter they were able to express that anger and that bitterness at the system at equality and things like that too so there's there's yeah, a couple no, different. Sides. Twitter's a pretty complex thing, and uh-huh. there's a lot of different ways to yeah.
3: I mean, I interpret. guess I, you could say that Twitter gave us Trump. You know, oh, that, absolutely, that, it that, did. That, you absolutely. You know, it Trump did. was sort of on Twitter saying, you know, you've been forgotten and you've right. been ignored, and I'm not forgetting you and I'm not ignoring you. And it's like, but really, those people had never been forgotten or ignored. You know, like they maybe lost like an eighth of an inch with Obama, sure. and and just you know lost their shit over it, but. I don't know. I, I
1: I guess my point is I feel like everybody's feels empowered by mm-hmm. able being able to speak into the vortex mm-hmm. just like you were talking about with in the old days it was a letter to the editor and mm-hmm. it you know it was always the the cranky old guy wrote right, the letter right, to the editor. Right. Now the cranky old guy's on Twitter mm-hmm. saying the same thing.
2: And mm-hmm. but the thing on Twitter is any news outlet can pick that up and turn it into a story. Now it's on Twitter. Mm-hmm. A letter to the editor is like going to a specific newspaper. It stays within that ecosystem. I think right, the, right, right, right. the crazy thing about Twitter is that it's there's not that many users compared to Instagram or Facebook, right? But mm-hmm. but mainstream media, Fox or any, right? any yeah. of
1: them, CNN, yeah. they
3: they, they write a whole Twitter story a lot more about,
1: closely. They follow Instagram. Yeah, right? the headline yeah, will be
3: about a tweet. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean it's it's interesting, and, and in terms of you know. I mean, I believe it's given voice to voiceless populations, but I agree with you that it's also in some cases served to amplify the people who always got heard, such as <laughs> right. such as Trump and, and his supporters and, and that... Um, I don't know. I don't I don't know what's gonna happen. I don't know what the outcome is going to be. I mean I you know, writing this this new book, I had to do a lot of reading and research about like social change and the movements of the sixties and the movements of the seventies. So I do believe that there's some there's there's like a, a two step forward, one step back nature to it. Like you gain and then there's a retrenchment or like the pendulum swings back. So I think we had we had a lot of progress with the Obama years. I mean we had a you know, an African American family in the White House and we had gay marriage and, and we had all of these sort of progressive gains and I think now the pendulum has swung back and I, I you know, I think eventually it's going to change again, but I think we're in like a really scary time right now. It's the sound of Is covered in bugs the
2: youth dreams cut short